This is the Music Buzz Podcast. Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz Podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Welcome to the Music Buzz Podcast. This is Andy Wilson along with co-host Dane Clark. How you doing, Dane? Hi, Andy. Doing just fine. And Dandy. Awesome. Good, good, good. And how about you, Hugh? Hugh Syme also? Uh, yes, it's good to see you again, Andrew. Yes. Yes, yes, always. Thanks for joining. Today's guest is Kevin Martin, uh, joining us on the Music Buzz podcast, singer of Candlebox, Les Projets, The Gracious Few, and The High Watts. Kevin's voice is amazing. It's one of those voices that sounds exactly like it does on the record in person. No joke. I've seen him many times, and it's always fantastic. Uh, founding member of the multi-million selling platinum hard rock band Candlebox, who burst onto the scene in the early 90s with their self-titled debut album and exploded on, on rock radio. As the first truly successful band on Madonna's Maverick Records, Candlebox earned their stripes and over the years have created an arsenal of memorable hard rock songs that have stood the test of time. Simple Lessons, Cover Me, Stand, Change, You, Arrow, Happy Pills, Don't You, Vexatious, Best Friend, and the top 10 hit Far Behind, and a brand new track, which we're going to talk a little bit more detailed about, uh, Let Me Down Easy, which is really badass, by the way, Kevin. Um, but after you listen to this podcast, personally, I, I encourage you to go listen to 10,000 Horses and Sometimes, two of my favorite songs uh, by Candlebox. So without further ado, welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, Kevin Martin. Thank you. Thank you very much. Very kind. Yeah. And generous introduction there. <laughs> yeah, of course. My pleasure. So let's talk about the beginnings of your career. So I, I've read up on you a little bit. So sometime between uh, I saw you were born in Illinois. And of course, uh, when you guys kind of hit that first record came out in 93, uh, you were a C you were in that Seattle scene. So kind of tell us about your first band, your beginnings in the, in the music business and how you got from those beginnings in Illinois to that first record that you guys came out with. Well, I wish, I wish I could say that I'd begun uh, or it began in Illinois, but I was just born there. Um, okay. I still have, I still have family and, and uh, relations there and whatnot, but um, you know, I, I, I didn't really, my father was musical. My mother was musical. Um, my older brothers and my older sister are all musical. So music was, was something that was a, a constant in our household. Um, so it was inevitable. I think that somebody in the family, you know, went on and did something uh, career wise. I mean, my father was a jazz musician, played around Chicago, played with everybody from um, uh, Dizzy Gillespie to Charlie Bird Parker, um, you know, and the, wow. from my dad, well, my dad was born in 1922. I should, I should, uh, you know, preface the whole thing with that. So he's 20 years older than my mother. Um, so my parents met in 1959 in Chicago, got married that uh, later that year, six months later. 
Oh. They were married what for 42 years. He played all the woodwind and all the brass. So if somebody needed oh, uh, wow. clarinet player, they'd call him. If they needed a sax player, they'd give him a call. He played everything. It was pretty, pretty impressive. And that's very impressive. I think, I guess. For all us kids, you know, when you, you pick up your first instrument in, in middle school and your dad says, let me see that thing. And he plays it for you. Like, what the fuck? How do you know all this shit? So, <laughs> that's intimidating. Um, it was, yeah, it was and he you know if he heard you practicing and like you fucked up that scale do it again you know sort of shit but um so you know like i said it it, it was uh, inevitable that one of us took it on um my first band was uh, in san antonio texas so uh, it was a little punk rock band i was playing drums um that was when i was 12 years old that's when i started i started out as a drummer um i walked away from instruments uh i think in um seventh grade uh, and moved on to the skin. So drums were my real passion. Um, right was that a Ringo driven thing or a, or a, a buddy rich driven thing? Well, to be honest with you, it was more, um, it was more topper heading um, from the clash. The clash was my oh, favorite yeah. band. Great drum. And I, yeah. And I always loved how topper moved around. Um, and, and what he did for the clash, I think was, you know, ultimately kind of why they ended up sounding the way they did. They never sure. really sounded the same after he left, but, um, and then of course I found John Bonham and that changed everything for me. So, um, you know, I, I've, I've been a, I've been a, a reluctant lead singer since, uh, since I was 10 years old, really. Um, all the good ones are reluctant. It seems. Yeah. So my dad took a job in, uh, in Seattle and we moved up there when I was 14 years old and right around my 19th birthday, um, Scott Mercado, our drummer gave me a call and said that uh, he had started a band with um, this guy named Rick Vaughn and they needed a singer. And, uh, and then he had heard me sing some, you know, at a party or something. I was like, well, I'm, I'm not a singer. I, I sung in school from grade two till my senior year, but that's just because, you know, there were girls in, in choir class. So, uh, wow. it was the easiest way to meet them. Um, but I never really thought that I was going to be a lead singer rock band. I always thought I'd be a drummer. And, um, and that was, that band became Candlebox two years later and I've been stuck with this job ever since. So. Yeah. That's awesome, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Seems like it's going all right. <laughs> it's, it's done. Okay. So when you decide, so when you took that leap and put the sticks down, um, I mean, who were your influences vocally at that point to, to, I mean, of course you sound like you're going to sound like who you are, but did you sure. have guys that you really looked up to as, as rock singers? Well, Otis Redding was, was always my favorite, um, rock and roll rhythm and blues singer. Um, I got that from my mother. She used to listen to gospel and rhythm and blues when, when I was growing up, I can remember coming home from school and hearing, um, you know, Aretha Franklin or Otis or something like that. Sure. Um, so Otis was really, and still is my go-to when I'm like, if I'm in the studio trying to figure out how I'm going to approach a song, um, not only lyrically, but melodically and, and rhythmically movement wise, I always go to Otis Redding and kind of pull a, a song from the library of his that, you know, I can, I can attach myself to um, just because he's always been so um, inspirational to me and influential. Um, and then of course, it's Steven Tyler, um, Robert, Robert Plant, um, Joe Strummer, um, Jello Biafra from uh, Dead Kennedys, just when it comes to the quickness of phrasing and stuff like that. Mm. Um, and, uh, and then contemporary wise, I'd say, you know, everybody from um, uh, what's his name? Sings for simple minds. Is it Steve, Steve? Uh, no, Jim Kerr. Simple Minds, I think, is a brilliant singer. Always loved kind of how he did things. I heard he's a real asshole, but um, love his style. But contemporaries, you know, Ian Asbury, guys like that, you know, that that just kind of mm -hmm. did it their own way. Um, and yeah, and, uh, sure. and and real big fan of those guys, you know, real big fan. Not necessarily the chops, but just those. some of those guys just have that style. You know, yeah. Jim Kerr is an example of that. It's not like an incredible range or anything, but you know who it is when you hear it. Kind of yeah, like right. you do with, with your own voice. 
Very recognizable mm-hmm. voice. Yeah, but thank you. But but Kevin's got the range though too. Yes, he does. Right. <laughs> Before you were on here, Kevin, we were talking about just if your ears are burning. You know why? But you know, when you think of Candlebox, I think a lot of people normally out of the box are going to think um, you know, hard rock, but some of your best songs, in my opinion, and where your voice really shines are the, are the I guess you would call them ballads, but just the, the slower songs. And, and man, you know, like I mentioned, 10,000 Horses, and those songs are just incredible. But songs. E- even songs like Cover Me start off with all the capabilities of that balladeer. And then, then when it kicks in, suddenly you have the high E <laughs> or the high C. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I... I, like I said, you know, I did mention Robert Plant and I think that, you know, for me, you know, ballads are, you know, a place where you let your voice kind of um, tell the story. And, you know, uh, I think, you know, All of My Love by Led Zeppelin is, you know, one of the greatest ballads ever written. Um, and then I've Been Loving You by these, these songs. Um, it's not just about it's not just about the emotion and the lyric it's about the whole story and songs like sometimes you know i wrote that song uh for my ex-wife we we were not doing well um our relationship was at a um at a crossroads and um it was actually the song i gave her to let her know that i was going to ask her for divorce just because um i didn't have the right words uh in conversation and i you know i've always found music has given me um, the freedom to express uh, any emotion I have when I don't have those words. And I'm not a real good conversationalist or, or confrontationalist when it comes to relationships, you know, so you've got to use those songs sometimes. And, and, um, but I do, you know, listen, I, I know what my voice is capable of. So I, I, you know, I got to say, I do know what I'm doing in the studio when I go for those notes. <laughs> yeah. Obviously. Yeah, man. Yeah. Speaking of words, a lot of songwriters tend to excel in one department or the other. Um, And then, of course, there are the people I really hate who are excellent at both. Uh, (laughs) You know, like like Joni Mitchell, Jackson Brown, Don, Peter Gabriel. How are you when it comes to words? You say you express yourself better with words, but when you write songs, when you when you approach a song, do you find the uh, the intent of the song before you develop the music? You know, I'm, 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 I'm music first. I let the song dictate what it is that I need to say. Um, I've tried, you know, back in the day, I tried carrying around the lyric book and stuff. And um, I always found that trying to shove a square peg in a round hole for me just did not work. Um, on this record, a new record, this song that we're going to talk about, um, that song was entirely inspired by, um, the lyrics were inspired by the music. But there are other songs on this record where I had, um, I had lines that I wanted to use um, that, that I was really, really kind of proud of mm-hmm. um, that I, I knew I could form into a song. So I just found that song that those lyrics suited um, and, and forced those in that um, in that square peg. But, you know, generally it's it's that melody gives me exactly what I need to say. I was listening to a McCartney interview where he, or he had explained how he would write the music and sit down and sort of allow the phonetics abstract as they might be come out of his mouth and certain certain sounds you know whether it's an e sound or an ah sound became his search for the right word that would sing that well it's exactly what i do yeah great uh shifting gears a little bit talking about the importance and before i jump into this hugh i can tell you from my experience of working with kevin i don't know if you remember this 
Kevin, when Candlebox got back together, I feel like it was in like maybe 2007 or so, six. I was actually involved in the first show that you guys played back in St. Louis and Puddle of Mud, I think was on that show or something. But the thing that struck me at the time was even in those days, and I think that was back in the MySpace days, (laughs) it was clear to me instantly what a marketing mind you had um, and still have. And, you know, not every band, uh, certainly they think about marketing aspects, but you've always seemed like you're really hands-on with that element of it. And so as we're shifting into talking about album artwork and the importance of presentation live and stuff, and Hugh's going to get into some of that, um, that's kind of where we're shifting. But, you know, with you specifically, I remember that back in the, even in those days of you just being really hands-on with that stuff. If you want to talk about that a little bit, and then Hugh's going to jump in with some questions about, uh, about the importance of that aspect. Yeah, yeah, sure. I actually re-familiarized myself with uh, some of your covers. We can delve into this later, but when I saw the abstract painting from uh, disappearing in a- airports, that's a refreshing kind of look. And then it's, it's juxtaposed to, the disturbing Harlequin, Lucy, you know, the, the disturbing uh, Harlequin. I, I mean, it, some of that stuff feels like the left and right turns that I like to make in my own work, where you keep your fans interested and you don't stick to any formula. You allow each project to be its own entity. And I think that's pretty admirable. And it's, it's clear that it comes from a band that cares about what they say visually as well as musically. Yeah, I mean, I think that Candlebox is always, you know, I've said this a million times, you know, we're never um, uh, some of the of the parts, we've always been the whole. And, you know, I think that the, what we've done musically, every single record um, has been a, a, a constant push on our on our own, um, you know, our own envelope, our own um, challenges, things that we wanted to do. Um, with Lucy, we produced a record that was incredibly raw. Um, we knew that we wanted to get a, as far away from the debut album as we could, even if it meant not selling the same amount of records. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we've never, you know, the four of us were never um, the best of friends. We, we met in the band. You know, I, I think that, um, you know, if Simon Cowell you know, may have put us together back in, you know, 1991, because I only knew Scott, I didn't know Barty, didn't know Pete and vice versa. So um, what what made that interesting is when we make these records, when it came to the time, uh, when it came time to produce the artwork, um, it's always about one of the songs on the record. And it's always about something that, um, that we want our fans to take with them. So the Lucy is the Harlequin with the single. It was the broken glass uh, or the broken jar that was shot with the infrared. So it's crashing and the milk's coming out, you know, no use crying over spilt milk. Yeah. Um, and then with disappearing airports, um, that was a painting that was done by a friend of mine who passed away. I had asked him to do the artwork for the record and he died two weeks into um, painting. Uh, he had a massive heart attack. He was only uh, 42 years old. So his oh. sister, gave me that painting um, to use. She said he kind of felt like this is where he wanted to go. And she said, this is one of my favorite paintings. She sent it to me. I fell in love with it. And it was the first record that I made without Pete um, and without um, Scott Mercado on drums. So um, it was a brand new band. It was me, Adam, Dave Cruzen, Brian Quinn, and this kid named Mike Leslie. And I wanted a, uh, an, an album title and a, and a painting that represented kind of that, um, the new growth uh, and the, and the, and the change in the band. And, and that's what that painting did. And, you know, I like into the sun, everybody expected us to have some sort of, you know, um, 
solar flare or some sort of, you know, kind of nebulous sort of thing. And I was like, well, no, that's, that's not really what it's about. It's kind of about disappearing into that sun and, and that kind of death and rebirth sort of thing. That's why you only have the smoke, you know, sort of thing. So um, I think about that stuff a lot. Well, it's good. It's it's apparent that you do. Um, as as an art director and, and album cover artist, I am also keenly aware of the fact that sometimes being a little bit impudent and um, almost uh, brave, I always use the term bravely minimal or unexpected, sometimes allows you to do a cover that stands on its own merit. And that's the tail that wags a dog. If the album's successful, suddenly the cover's brilliant, despite itself, you know doesn't mean that it's not a good cover to begin with, but, but I, I found, you know, I've taken, <laughs> I've taken chances, especially with the freedoms afforded to me with the band rush. I've taken chances with co- their covers where we've just done ex- slightly absurd things on the cover, not knowing going in, whether they would stick or they would have any, any place in history, but you know, sometimes you trust your gut, you know? Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's clear. You've got, I mean, you know the the kids runners in far behind is a brilliant little cover you know i i had read somewhere that was it ralph steadman who uh did the um t- did something with the first record is that right he did our um he did the paint the hand-drawn logo he also had done cheap trick at the same time uh, warner brothers uh art department um had hired him to do cheap tricks i did not know that um I was, a, I'm a huge Hunter Thompson fan. Um, and Ralph yeah. Stedman's, I mean, I've got, I've got tons of shit that Ralph Stedman's done over the years. Um, but I, you know, I curse of Lono and all those books are, you know, hands down my favorite uh, Hunter S Thompson. My first band was called Hunt, Hunt, uh, uncle Duke, you know, because uh-huh. of, that's how much I loved him. Um, so the opportunity to use Ralph Stedman to do that uh, logo um, was, you know, I mean, looked ridiculously expensive, but you know, made it, made it worth it. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know he did that logo. And and if you had actually cornered me and said, "Who do you think did this logo?" I would have said Ralph Steadman or Gerald Scarf. Ger- Gerald Scarf was the other kind of English answer to you know with the wall and so on. There's a lot of Steadman influences there as well. So talk to us a little bit about um, the new the new song, if you will, came out uh, very recently. Let me down easy, which I understand was co-written with uh, Peter Cornell. Um, brother of uh, the late Chris Cornell. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that, Kevin, that the new song and the artwork behind that too? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I, I knew Pete, you know, lim- limitedly um, in Seattle. He was quite a, quite a few years older than me, obviously. And I think maybe three or four years older than Chris. Um, and he was kind of the first musician of the Cornell family. that was out and about Seattle playing music. Um, and, uh, and I had met him once or twice at a, a show pays, uh, the, the Posey show or, you know, uh, or a fastback show or something like that. Um, but I never really got to know him. And, um, I knew Chris far, far better, um, because he was, uh, at the time he was dating Susan Silver, who I was working for at Fluvog Shoes and Silver Management. Um, but, um, I, I had an opportunity to get to, to really hang out with him a couple of years ago. We did some shows in Seattle, the, the uh, original band for the celebration of the, the debut album 25th anniversary. And he came to the show with his wife, uh, who's my manager, Amy Decker. And, um, and we just, just sat down and started talking and we talked for hours. And uh, I said, I'm doing a record and I, I would be honored to have a song by you. I was a huge fan of his band, Inflatable Soul. And, um, and he said, well, what are you looking for? And I said, I, I really want to do the next record for me. I want to be just kind of a loose rock and roll album, you know, Rust Never Sleeps, Crazy Horse vibe. 
um, no holds barred. There's, there's not going to be any wrong or right song. It's just going to be a, a rock and roll record. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he said, well, let me see what I got and I'll throw you some stuff. And he sent me this song. I don't know how many months later, um, on an acoustic, like, I think they're called Dobros, the, the metal acoustic guitars. They're yeah, like uh, aluminum. And, uh, and he had a slide and he was kind of humming some shit. And I, it, it, it sounded exactly how it sounds right now. I mean, it, it had the same energy. It had the same attitude. It had the same swampy blues vibe. It made me want to go to the crossroads and sell my soul. And, um, and that's exactly what I did. I, I, I took it to the good band. Good song, man. Really good Thank song. you. I said to the guys, I said, listen, we're, we're, we're Robert Johnson right now. And this is, the, this needs to be a swampy bluesy rock and roll track. Um, that needs to feel like black rebel motorcycle club, just cut it. Um, cause I love those guys. And, and I did, I tend to do that when we're working on a song in the studio that we don't know, I'll pull from my catalog that I know that I love that I'm trying to influence the song with, um, or inspire the musicians with. And this just felt so black rebel to me. So kind of a template. Exactly. It gives them the idea of what they need to work with. Um, and, and, um, but it's entirely theirs. You know, it's, sure. it's, it's just, you go with it. Like with cruising, um, he did not hear this song on the drums. So he asked me to sit down behind and, and that's when I did the clack, 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 you know, this that old kind of cool rock and roll thing that drummers do on the, on the rims to give it a little bit of a go yep. and make it feel like it's train and gave me the track uh, on the album that that drum beat is, is um, everything to this, to this track. And of course that dirty bass line, you know, sounds like it's coming through a broken speakers and, uh, and all that shit. And I sent it to Pete, I sent him the demo version and he's like, man, this is great. This is exactly what I heard. And, and, um, and there we have it. You know, I, I, I fell in love with the song, uh, you know, from the get go and I'm, I'm just so proud of it. And, and the artwork, you know, the video, the lyrical video behind or the, yeah, the lyric video behind it is just really about those, you know, the, those, there is a, a real darkness in, um, organized religion. And, um, and there is a, uh, there's a side of it that I think people, um, you know, turn away from that um, everybody needs to recognize. I mean, you know, you, you see what's going on with Falwell and all this oh, bullshit, yeah, yeah. you know, and, um, yeah. you know, I, I was raised, I was raised Roman Catholic, you know, and, and uh, I was an altar boy and, and these are things that, you know, I, I, I've seen and heard about. Um, and, uh, and I wanted to reflect that in the song, you know, visually and lyrically. And, uh, and that's what we did. And, but, you know, you have the bridge section of the song that says, look, I want to make it, you know, don't let me down. I can get through this. And that's the, you know, that's that redemption that we all yeah. look for. So, uh, right. I, I guess maybe that long, long short of it right there. Kevin, if you would, obviously this, what went on in the early nineties in Seattle and you were there, um, and you know, was, hasn't happened since maybe never happened again. I mean, in a lot of ways, I feel like that was the, one of the last great musical movements from a city, right. When the record labels were still, you know, record labels as they were then yeah. take us back to that time uh, in your world at that time, you know, what, what were you doing? And then what, what did you see? What did you experience? What's, what's your story from being there during those, during those years? Well, I mean, I, you know, like I said, I moved there when I was 14. So it's a, you know, a, a very young age to be um, thrown into a, a musical scene such as the Seattle scene. Um, sure. It was dark and muddy and, and um, down tuned and loud. And I mean, it was everything that I had, I had kind of skipped being in Texas, you know, um, didn't have a lot of that. Texas at the time in the eighties was, you know, predominantly, especially San Antonio was really punk rock. Um, 
And then to move to this city where it's raining every fucking day and, you know, there's nothing to do except sit in your basement and, and play guitar and do drugs, um, you know, which at the time I was doing <laughs> drugs, so it was perfect for me. Um, but um, yeah, it, it was, it was strange, man. I, I, my first week of school, um, I met two, you know, two of my greatest friends to this day, John and Sarah. Uh, they took me downtown that Friday night. We saw Soundgarden play very first time and Chris, Chris Cornell was playing drums and singing and, and uh, I was immediately like, oh, this is going to be fucking rad. Um, and that, you know, that was the, you know, that was the bubbling of, of that musical scene. Sure, uh, sure, of course, yeah. you know, um, what year was that? Do you remember like what year? 84. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, 80, 84. yeah. So you were there, you were there for all of it. Yeah. Well, not all of it. Cause there was a lot of cool shit that happened in the seventies. <laughs> Let's not forget. Well, that. well, well, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. But there was just so much cool shit going on musically. There was a, a great venue called Gorilla Gardens that you could see Cabaret Voltaire came come down from Canada, would play at um, 5440, Skinny mm. Puppy. I mean, there was just so much music in the Northwest. And, uh, and, I, and I was just so thankful to, you know, be so young to be able to experience it. Um, and then as time progressed, you know. I did a cover for 5440. I just had to point that out. Up in Vancouver. Oh, that's great. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean great band you know um i loved all that shit and you know there, there was that kind of crossbreeding that was happening between canada and and, and washington as well to vancouver the west coast of canada yeah, and, and washington state musically sure um and um and so i just uh i got to see a lot of great fucking concerts and be around a lot of really talented musicians and then then i met uh andy wood uh when he was playing with malfunction and and that was kind of what changed it for me when i realized that um there was just some really incredibly beautiful people that were making music as well. Andy was just uh, this bright shining fucking star in this really dark city. Um, and of course he had his demons, you know, but um, we all know about that, but he, when that kid popped into a fucking room man, it just lit up and, um, and he was everything that Freddie Mercury was and more. And that was really what changed it for me when I started mm -hmm. thinking I could maybe do this rock and roll thing. And, and, you know, I might be a drummer doing it, but I might be able to do this. You know, I, I, I thought that there was a chance cause he was, he was the only musician that actually would sit down and talk with me when he'd pop into flu logs about, you know, bands and shit. And, um, and then there were those untouchable musicians, you know, you didn't get close to stone and Jeff, unless you were in a band with them, uh, you know, green river or something like that. Uh, Mark arm was another musician that you weren't really going to get close to unless you were into the, you know, the dirty punk rock scene that was going on in, in Seattle. So it had its clicks as well. It was very high school. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if any musician from there has ever maybe said that. Um, maybe it's just because I was younger than all of them. I was the freshman and they were the seniors, but um, right. you know, I still feel that way. I still feel that Seattle, even to this day, <laughs> as old as we are, Candlebox is never going to open fucking Pearl Jam and, and we're never going to open for Alice in Change, which is just stupid. But um you know, uh, then came Dave Grohl, who kind of made it cool to be from, uh, you know, from another part of the, you know, the country and moved to Seattle. And, oh, oh that's okay. You know, Dave Grohl, because he was in Nirvana. Well, he wasn't a Seattleite, um, and neither was I. Right. So, you know, but I mean, it was just weird, you know. I mean, there's there's yeah. that side that you can talk about that, uh, you know, I guess like Akron, Ohio, you can go back to that kind of movement that was happening in the Midwest. There was the cool punk rock Akron, Ohio, and then there was this stupid butt rock Akron, Ohio, you know, um, and, and every city has that sort of thing. But, you mm -hmm. know, I was just a kid that was fortunate enough to, to move there because my dad took a job and I got to experience it and it's given me this career for 30 fucking years. So I got nothing to complain about. <laughs> right. That's awesome. Well, I've got a question, uh, about a specific cover song that you recorded. Um, 
you did a version uh being a beatles fanatic uh you did a version of lennon's uh from his walls and bridges record steel and glass mm-hmm. and killer version of it i love what oh. you did you definitely did your own thing with the melody and the way the song built and everything but also there's a couple of lines in there that i never heard before uh it certainly wasn't on the original record and i I about just jumped out of my chair when i heard that last night it was really cool i mean was that something that that you added in there or was it from a john demo uh i just i just had to ask you that because it's such a cool version of the song you guys should listen to it stealing glass uh thank you um yeah we lindy gets our manager at the time he put together that um working class hero tribute album and and asked us to do i wanted to do um wheels you know, I'm just sitting here watching oh, yeah. the wheels go round and round. But Lindy's like, no, I want you to do Steel and Glass because I know that you'll go after it. And then he had one of the original demo versions that had that. I think wow. it's like, uh, it's like it's like two bars, right? Of, or, yes. Or is it one two, bar? Two yeah, lines. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I, I had never heard them before either. Um, and so I was kind of like, well, they're on the demo. Maybe they should be uh, on the record. And, and I think I threw them in because uh, – um, there's, there's a bit of poignancy to them. Sure. Uh, and, and, um, you know, and that song's just about, you know, him talking shit about, uh, you know, Alan Klein. Um, yeah, actually, exactly. actually it's about Alan Klein, that song. Yeah. His Everybody manager. thinks about Paul McCartney, but right. uh, it's about Alan. Yeah. So, yep. uh, and I just like, well, maybe, you know, maybe it needs to be in there. So we did it. We did two versions. We did one that was the original without it. And we did that one. And Lindy wanted that one on the record. So. Awesome. I won't say what you said in there, but uh, <laughs> you're just saying what yep. he said. But no, it's very cool. Very nice version of that. Thank you very much. So tell us about your first attended concert as a fan. Do you remember what your first show was? Yeah, Dead Kennedy's Black Flag Butthole Surfer, San Antonio, Texas. I was 12 years old. Nice. Wow. Where at? Yeah. What was the venue? Do you know what venue it was? Uh, it was called the SBC Hall in San Antonio. Uh, I only remember that because we used to call it Sandy Patina. Sandy Piscina Cantina. Uh, Sandy Piscina was this girl that we went to um, to uh, high school with, um, and uh, um, she was when we would whenever anybody would have a party, she'd be the one who called the cops and told told on everybody. She was like one of those kids in school was like a hall monitor, and none of us <laughs> liked her. But the, the S, it was called the SBC Hall. I don't know why, but we called it Sandy Piscina Cantina. That's why we remember it. But yeah, my uh, my best friend from high school, uh, Jeff Renald, um, his older sister was friends with a cheerleader named Reagan, um, Reagan Barris. And Reagan and, and Jeff and I used to go see concerts all the time. She was a senior um, that nobody else would go see shows with her. And um, she loved punk rock music. So she would take Jeff and I all the time. She's still one of my best friends. She's actually a teacher at my high school in San Antonio, MacArthur. Um, and, um, she's been teaching there, uh, going on 30 years now, but, uh, her son's a professional skateboarder, um, and, uh, and her other son's a professional skateboarder and filmmaker. Um, and she used to work at this record store called hog wild. And she got these tickets and said, Hey, we want to go see the dead Kennedy's. I'm like, fuck yeah. Um, and I was a freshman and, and, uh, and she, and she took me and, and we had the best time. And it was, it was, uh, and years later when I toured with Henry Rollins, I, so I did a stage dive at that show. And I hit the ground and nobody picked me up and, and Henry saw that and he jumped out and pulled me back up on stage oh, really? while I was doing, wow. while I was doing damaged and I sang it with him. And then years later when we toured with him in Europe, um, I couldn't talk to him. I, I was so starstruck. Uh-huh. He thought I was just some asshole fucking Seattle kid. And, uh, he, he asked me at the last show, which was in, uh, in, in, um, Hamburg, 
what's your problem? You know what? You've been out on the road with me for four weeks. You haven't said one word to me. And I was like, dude, I, I, I couldn't even look at him. You know, I was like, you, when I was 12 years old, you changed my life. You know, I, I had every record that you had made with black flag. I went to the show in San Antonio and, uh, in, in, um, 1982. And, and, um, you just, he goes, that was SBC all. Cause of course he remembers all that shit, you know? Wow. He's like, you're that kid. And I said, I was the kid that didn't get up on stage or didn't get, get up when I did the stage dive and you pulled me back up. And we did damage together. He's like, wow, that's you. That's crazy. So, mm. um, yeah, I, I'll never forget that shit. That's, that's, awesome. that's um, yeah, yeah. That's the first experience in my life that I was like, I, I, I can, uh, I can certainly, um, understand why everybody wants to break shit, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> when you're right. in that environment. <laughs> what about your first paid gig? Like, you know, you got, you guys get booked and you actually got some money in your pocket. Tell us about that. Uh, it was a wedding. <laughs> it was a wedding. I was playing, I was playing drums and, uh, it was uh-huh. my buddy, my buddy was a guitar player in this punk band. My band was called RIPB, which was radical youth penis brigade. Um, and he's, uh, <laughs> nice. classy. He's, yeah. He's like, my brother's getting married and they need a band and we got to learn a bunch of cover songs. Um, so we learned everything from dance with myself. I think every song that's on the wedding singer soundtrack, um, we learned, right. um, but yeah, I mean, money, money and yeah. all that right. fucking wedding shit. Yeah. And I was, uh, I was 16. So that, that was my first paid gig. Yeah. Now, obviously, you know, we talk about Candlebox cause that's, you know, but you, you've also been the, the front man for several other bands, the gracious few being one of them and high Watts and other stuff. So, you know, obviously, you're always exploring new opportunities, new avenues. Talk to us a little bit about that, you know, that aspect of, of, of your, uh, of your singing and just uh, being a musician. Well, you know, I guess it's just, I, I've got a lot of friends out there that, you know, are, are band, you know, band guys and been in bands forever. And, and, you know, I, the high Watts was really just because I, I Maverick records, I you know, got terminated from that deal in 2000 couldn't do anything uh, with the band name Candlebox until around 2006. Um, so the only way around that was to form a new band. So I started this band called the High Watts. I got signed to a record deal with, um, at the time the label was called Gold Circle. It was that guy from um, Gateway Computers um, that had a film division that had done my fat, big fat Greek wedding or whatever it was. And he wanted a label um, as well. So I got assigned to that. And then, then the label folded. So I got my master's back and I put it out by myself. I toured on that for a few years. Um, and then as Candlebox reformed, uh, I, I felt like I missed that camaraderie of, of other musicians. And um, so I started um, uh, the gracious view with the guys from live in 2009, Chad and Patrick and Chad, um, I think had gotten a little bit fed up with Ed Kowalczyk and, and asked me uh, if I would be interested in doing something with them. So um, that was, you know, a labor of love record really. I mean, it ended up costing us more than, then I think we'll ever make off that record, but it was a really fun record to make. It was the first time that I shared lyric writing responsibilities. Um, uh, the guys, I, I knew what they were going through with Ed because I had kind of had those emotions and moments with my former bandmates, Pete and Barty and Scott, when they, when they all kind of quit on me in 2000 or in, in 1999 and, you know, stuck me with a, a huge fucking bill. Um, uh, you know, which of course now years later, we've, we've all kind of moved past that, but you know, I, I had those kinds of emotions that those guys are dealing with. And, mm. and I said, you know, let's, if you guys want to exercise some demons, you know, give me some lyrics and let's work with it. And so all three of them, you know, had plenty to say and, which is a lot of fun. Cause there's some great, there's some great songs on that record, like honest man, uh, which I actually co-wrote with Jerry Harrison from talking heads. 
um, oh, cool. which cool. is a, you know, really, I fucking love that song. Um, uh, but that was, you know, just a real rock record, I think. Um, mm-hmm. and then, uh, Le Projet was, uh, a buddy of mine, Jeff Sosorsi, who had worked with, um, how did you say that? How did you say the band's name again? Cause I screwed it up earlier. Clearly. Uh, oh, it's French. Le Projet. Uh, okay. Yeah, it's uh, it's just. I should have had Hugh say that since he's from Toronto. <laughs> you know? Yeah, uh, it sounded cooler anyway. Um, yeah, it just you know the project um, in French, but um, Morgan uh, had uh, been working with these kids, uh, friends of mine from Infinite Staircase, Jeff and his brother Lenny, and um, they asked me if I would come out and do this um, song for the uh, Hurricane Sandy victims because uh, they were from New uh, from Long Island, New York, and. and so I flew out there and did that wild Morgan Rose and um, uh, JD on bass and then Lenny and, and Jeff. And I sang on that, which is a song called the pride. And that ended up becoming Le Projet with Morgan, myself, um, uh, the kid named Nick, Nick Cantonese. Is that his name? He's a guitar mm, player. Not sure. I think that was his mm, name. Sure. Yeah. He, he was in black label society for a minute and then he did this project with mm. us. And then we kicked him out of the band cause he's a bit of a dick. And then of course years, I think a year later we found out he was, um, you know, some sort of pedophile, but good thing he left the band. But um, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was weird. It was because we we wrote these songs um, kind of, it was was almost virtual, like what's going on right now with all these bands having to work in different, you know, neighborhoods and shit in different cities and states and countries. Um, We wrote Mm -hmm. those songs for Le Projet. Like I wrote two of the songs in my bedroom, then I would send those to Adam, then he would come up bass parts and then they would send them off to Morgan and Morgan and, Lenny would kind of build the song and then Nick would lay this part down. And then I would fly out to new, to New Jersey with Adam and we'd record him in the studio. And then, uh, it's really strange, but ended up coming up with, um, I think it was like seven or eight songs out that I really, really love. We have a song called refugee, which is a fucking relentless fucking rock song. Um, it's, it's one of my favorites. If you're looking for something to listen to refugee on YouTube by Le Perget's fucking badass. It's a, it's awesome. a monster track, man. Um, and that's the first time I actually worked with um, Brian Quinn, who's now my guitar player in Candlebox. He came and laid the solos down because Nick had left the band and, uh, and Brian became our guitar player. So it's me, Adam Curry, who's my bass player now with Candlebox. Brian Quinn, who's now my, my guitar player in Candlebox. Lenny Sussorsi, Jeff Sussorsi, and Morgan uh, Rose from Seven Dust. And that's Le Projet. So I think I read that there was 11 years that you didn't receive any uh, record royalties from the company? Was it 13, the, 13 years? Well, Jeez. wow. So it, tell it us a little bit about that, man. <laughs> Gosh, that's a beating. Yeah, it was, it was tough. Well, you know, I think that what, ha- what had happened was Maverick was, um, they were in turmoil. Um, I think they felt like maybe they're a little bit bigger than, than the bridges. And, um, and they wanted to move like out with the old and with the new. And they felt like Freddie was kind of losing sight of, you know, where, where a record label should go. And I think immediately when, when young people start to question the success of their um, uh, seniors, or if you will, or those that have come before them that led record labels or film companies to great successes, uh, you're always asking for trouble. Mm-hmm. Um and Freddie was a smart motherfucker. I mean, you know, Lionel Con- or Lionel Richie, uh, Madonna, uh, Michael Jackson, the height of all three artists' careers was Freddie DeMann. Um, and we felt that tension when we were making Happy Pills. We knew that it was inevitable that we were going to leave the label. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and 
inevitably we made the record. Um, it did okay. I think it sold two or 300,000 copies, but it left us with an enormous debt um, tied to, to that um, contract. And so unfortunately we thought we were smarter than the label. We, we decided to break up in 2000 and it backfired and I was stuck as the key man. Um, I tried to deliver demos, but they weren't accepting. I was doing the whole Neil Young thing with really shitty songs and, you know, uh, just say, Oh yeah, here's more, here's 10 more songs for the next record. And, um, and they were shit, you know, I knew they were shit, but I was just trying to get out of the deal. And the only way I was able to get out of the deal was I told the wrong person to go fuck themselves. And, um, I got terminated. And in that termination agreement, I had to agree to pay back the fourth Candlebox record, which the advance was $1 million, um, which I never got. I had to agree to pay that back my quarter of that, which would have been $250,000 at my royalty rate, which was four points, which took 13 fucking years. Oh, wow. So, wow. That's crazy. That's bullshit. Brutal. All the other guys got to get their royalties. Mm. Unbelievable. Because <laughs> it was basically you at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's an awful story <laughs> that yeah. shows you what the music business can really be like right there. Yeah. It's Jeez. tough. No kidding. So, Kevin, uh, looking back on some of the live experiences, um, what are some shows that stick out that you were either, you know, opening for somebody or you're playing a big festival? What are those that somebody says, name two or three experiences you're playing on stage and you're just like, I can't believe we're here, you know, that kind of thing. I can't believe we're on the same, sharing the stage with this band. What are those shows for you? Well, that would have been the first night that we started the Rush tour. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I still, I still can't believe, you know, we toured with, you know, one of my favorite bands of all times, you know, when you mentioned that you did the album covers, I mean, I have every Rush record ever fucking made. Um, you know, being a drummer, one of the, you know, the persons that as I started to progress in my playing that I emulated, of course, was Neil Peart and John Bonham. Um, so touring with those guys was a fucking dream come true. So that first show, and then of course, Madison Square Garden with them was, you know, unbelievable. Right. Um, the Forum in Los Angeles, um, Woodstock 94 in front of, you know, 300,000 people, Metallica that summer of 94 touring with them, all the Henry Rollins dates, uh, the fall yeah. tour with the Flaming Lips in 94. I mean, the list goes on and on. We did Aero, we did Aerosmith from uh, October of 98 to New Year's Eve of 98, which was, you know, really? unbelievable. That was fucking rad. You know, I love wow, Aerosmith. Yeah. And, That's great. Yeah. So what album was that? 98, you said? Yeah, I think it was a cat. The one was a cat. Yeah, no, what was it? Nine Lives or Nine something? Lives, Nine Lives. Nine yeah. Lives tour. Yeah. yeah. Now, Hugh, Hugh did the album artwork for Get a Grip. That, that album he did. Yeah, was right. right. Yeah. Yeah, they were lovely people, too. I enjoyed meeting them. You know, I got a funny story about those guys. We, we did, the one time I got to do a sound check, um, we did Lickin' a Promise, which is one of my favorite songs ever. And because um, and the band wasn't, it was, I think it was in, uh, we were in Worcester, Massachusetts. So the band was obviously at home and they weren't coming in for sound check. Uh, but lo and behold, Steven Tyler was there. And, um, and as we, as I was headed back to my dressing room, uh, he's like, how you doing with your bad self? And I'm like, good man. Good. And he's like, all right, don't even think about it. And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, nobody covers Aerosmith on an Aerosmith tour. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, man, I wouldn't even, I would never, ever, uh, ever, <laughs> ever. <laughs> that. uh, that's funny yeah, man I mean, I was, and, and even the crew guys were like man th we haven't heard that song in 
30 fucking years, you know? I mean, it's right. that, that album rocks and even toys in the attic. Those two records are my favorite Aerosmith records of all time, man. And, and, you know, I, again, when, when you, when you're a musician that gets to tour with your, your idols and your, and your childhood, sure. you know, they, it's just, it's bizarre, man. It's fucking, it's the greatest thing in the world. And, and I, and one of the things I learned from all these bands was always take out bands you want to fucking watch. You know what? Take out a band right. you want to see yep. on stage, a band you think people needs to people need to see, and and that's what you know. That's why every one of these bands that we talked to, are like, why you know, why did you bring us on the road? Like, we love what you do. You know, like Neil Pert used to come to our dressing room and tell us how to switch our fucking set list around. That's fucking crazy, you know. <laughs> and and that's great. I'll never did forget. Did you take that. his Absolutely. advice? Absolutely. He he was watching us for the first um, five shows. Right. And he came, he came into our set in Austin after our show in Austin. And he said, Hey, listen, I, I've been watching guys and I think you should move these three songs around. Um, I think the flow, because being a lyricist and a, and a drummer, he yeah. was listening to the way the songs were flowing sure. and, and he was absolutely right. And the rest of that tour, which was three months long, we played that fucking set list every night. And it was That's awesome. That speaks volumes because knowing Neil as I have for, well, as I had for 40 some years. Yeah he's a pretty private guy. So for him to step outside and, and do that, that's a huge compliment to you guys. Yeah. It was huge, man. I mean, I, you know, we did their end of tour party and, and we were in Albany, New York. It was, I think the last show was in Rochester mm-hmm. following that one. And, and um, I got to play golf with him um, 18 holes and what an interesting, beautiful human being. I, I'm, yeah. I just was so sad when he passed and, and everything that had happened to him and losing his, his, his daughter and his wife, you know, I, I knew him before that. And, uh, and I, and I never got to see him after that. I got to see Alex and, and Getty, uh, several times I've been to several shows and, and they're still kind enough to there where they were kind enough to let me right. come backstage. That'll never happen again. But, you know, um, the, I love those guys, you know, from, from the bottom of my black heart, I fucking love those guys with every ounce of my being. They were the kindest, most gentle human beings. They were and, and, and extraordinarily loyal and, 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 and you know, really, really lovely people, and and smart, yeah. really smart about yeah. their. I mean, having my association with Neil is something I'll treasure forever. You know, I met him yeah. on when I went in the studio for twenty one twelve, and Terry, their producer at the time, just said, "You want to do some playing?" And I said, "Hell yes!" You know, so I, I got to actually before we started delivering albums through internet and JPEGs and so on, which is now a faceless industry. We, yeah. I, used, I used to go to the studio and, and meet up with the guys and talk albums. And if it wasn't for that face-to-face, I wouldn't have been asked to play on a, on a Rush cover, on a Rush album, you know, which was you know, a brilliant experience. Even. Yeah, yeah. I'll miss his, uh, his big words, his big heart, his big music. Um, yeah. Yeah, Amazing. phenomenal. Amazing guy. Well, thank you so much for, for the time and for uh, for everything. Is there any other questions you guys have, Dane, you? No, not not, not specifically. I, I do hope you did take notes, though, Andy, because you, you, you mentioned several songs that you've been working on, Kevin, that you're really pleased with and happy with. And at my age, I don't retain things as well as I should. Uh, <laughs> well, thanks, Dane. Thank you yeah. very much. Yeah, keep on keeping on and stay in touch, and uh, we'll look forward to maybe connecting down the road sometime. So, so glad you're well as well. Please do, and you guys as well, man. Stay safe, stay healthy. Uh, Dave, 
Dane, listen, if you're ever in this, uh, you know, this crazy Los Angeles area uh, playing with John, you know, get, get my information. I will. I'd, I'd love to come say hi because I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan. Do that. that. That'd be fantastic. Awesome. awesome. Right on, man. Great stories. Thank you. Care of yourself, man. Oh, yeah.